the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This episode is a rebroadcast of The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey everybody, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us today. Aubrey, we talk all the time. I think a common mantra here is uh, the 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 animosity that that feels like is is present in our culture the the anger and yeah. uh, interestingly over at the new york times uh tish harrison warren who we've had on the show before but you really love to see people like tish harrison warren and uh karen swallow prior uh having a voice at the new york times absolutely op-ed. let me just read you the first line of the op-ed she wrote how Americans can learn to live together again. And she just says this, the nation is coming apart. The world is in turmoil. We need to chat about the weather. I mean this sincerely. I love how she's framing this. What do you think of just the start of that article? Yeah, I mean, I think that's really interesting that in the midst of all of these really sort of heavy-handed, divisive conversations were happening that perhaps there is something to just some shallow social conversations, right? right. Later on in this article, she says, the great urban activist Jane Jacobs wrote about the social function of casual conversations and interactions, greeting your grocer, passing a pleasantry with a neighbor, playing peekaboo with a toddler at a crosswalk. Most of it Mm -hmm. is utterly trivial. This is her quoting Jane Jacobs, but the sum is not trivial at all. Mm, that's so good. And for some those of you who like statistics, who like um, evidence, uh, a recent poll she quotes at the University of Virginia Center for Politics showed that 75 percent of Biden voters and 78 percent of Trump voters believe that their political opponents, quote, have become a clear and present oh danger my. to the American way of wow. life. Wow. A majority of Trump voters, that being 52 percent and a large minority of Biden voters, 41 percent. Listen to this. Support splitting the country into two along blue and red lines. No, 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 no. So David French, uh, she quotes later, he notes that our mutual loathing is based more on emotion than policy. And so her point Mm -hmm. is, uh, um, statistically, what we know from uh, all of this is we're getting pulled apart. We're pulling apart uh, and we're kind of enjoying it. Like we're like, yeah, let's do Mm -hmm. that. And we often we we go back and forth about what's the solution. We have to have deep conversations. We have to reach across the aisle, find common ground. All of those are true. But her point is, especially as we come out of COVID and hopefully we see each other more and more, uh, the answer is actually being civil. This is the Jim Dennison. Exactly. It's it's being civil and talking about the weather. I love that. Think about uh, what you do on a casual uh, relationship with people, you often talk about the weather. <laughs> hey, kind of cold out today. You we, and I do, do it do often. It all the time. Yeah. Wow. It's a chilly <laughs> one out there. Yep. <laughs> Maybe that's our way of our bridging yeah. our divide. But 
But man, we have to get to the point, and I'd love you to weigh in on this, where we stop seeing people as enemies, people of other faiths, yeah. people of other politics, people of other other thoughts about vaccines and masks, people of other thoughts about the White Sox or the Cubs, whatever else it might be. We've got to find a way to bridge that divide. And one of the ways she's saying to bridge that divide is to reclaim the casual conversation. Yeah, it is interesting how something so simple can really like rehumanize each other after we have dehumanized each other, like Mm -hmm. building a sense of trust, building a sense of like we're all in this together kind of thing and, and building a sense of just like. You, I mean, by talking about the weather, you're just sort of building that very simple, like social grace, you know, and there's something really powerful about that, that I had not thought about before. I was thinking about this in light of something too, you know, Kevin and I, we haven't shared this with our listeners yet, and maybe we'll do so tomorrow, but Kevin and I have been through a hard week this week and the people that have come around us with meals or with phone calls or with letters in the mail have been people on Every side of the political spectrum, every part of the country, like you said, they've been Bears fans and they've been uh, Green Bay Packers (laughs) fans. And yet they loved us because it's a social thing to do to come around someone when they're in a hard time. And I think there is something that's really right about what Tish uh, I always forget if it's Tish Warren Harrison or Tish Harrison Warren, but Tish, our old Tish friend Tish, Tish, Tish Harrison, Harrison Warren, Warren is yeah. um, calling us to like, like you said, simple civility to build back some social trust in a season yes. of distrust. Yeah. And uh, we say this at our church often that everybody wants, you know, one of our values at our church that, you know, every church has their values. And we talk about being deep in community, right? Having a depth of community. Uh, but whenever we talk about that, I always tell, I always remind people deep community begins with mm, shallow that's community. That's good, Brian. Like even think about your spouse. There was a time where you and Kevin met for the first yeah. time. And you weren't burying your soul to right. each other. The first time, the first time I met my wife, uh, you know, we still remember it was at Wheaton, and we're getting into a van to go to church. Like that's what you do your freshman year at Wheaton, right? You just get into random vans and go to church. And then we went out to lunch with a big group. We weren't talking about like, you know what? What do you want to name our children when we get older? <laughs> exactly, <laughs> like just, exactly. Who are you? And it was this, uh, this just, um, you know, shallow conversation, and that builds and. Uh, I just think, you know, civility and having these these conversations about the weather, to use her example, reminds us that not everybody is a social media meme and not everybody is uh, what they believe politically, uh, that we can kind of bridge these and not even bridge them with things that matter even more. But it could just be, well, yeah, weather is out there today. How's your life going? You know, well, that kind yeah. of stuff. What's your... You know, what'd you have yeah. for dinner? So let me read how uh, Warson, Warren Tish Harrison uh, ends this. Just kidding. <laughs> I was like, you did it too. Oh, you were playing a trick on me. Okay. I was playing a trick on you. She ends this way. As we rebuild our ordinary lives again as COVID recedes, one of the first and most important things we need to reestablish is a habit of talking with those around us about nothing that will ever be considered a hot take. Mm. There is a profound political and spiritual need to see our ideological opponents as first and foremost humans like us. The future of American society really does depend on two people who believe wildly different things, having the ability to make uh, having the ability to have a pleasant conversation about the weather and walk away with the feeling that they are just a little less alone. I I, I think that's beautifully Amazing. written. Yeah. 
And Aubrey, I, I guess I would end it this way. That is super important in the church right now. Like, yeah, if that's important culturally, mm-hmm. that is really important uh, within our churches that have been divided and torn yeah, apart. Yeah, I so, was thinking that, like, if this is a call for the for the world, and it is, this is above and beyond a call for followers of Jesus right now to simply right. be kind to one another. Absolutely. Well, coming up next, an interview that Aubrey and I are really excited uh, to do. We're going to be joined by Lee Strobel to talk about Lee's new book, The Case for Heaven, A Journalist Investigates Evidence for Life After Death. Lee Strobel is a fascinating person, and we're going to spend some time with him next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. This episode is a rebroadcast of The Common Good on AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. And uh, Aubrey, we are thrilled to be joined by a Chicagoan, right? He may not be here now, but a, a Chicagoan. He is the His founding roots director. are Chicago. Exactly, That's exactly. He's a founding director of the Lee Strobel Center for Evangelism and Applied Apologetics at Colorado Christian University. Uh, also the author of many books, including a new one entitled The Case for Heaven, A Journalist Investigates Evidence for Life After Death. He is Lee Strobel. Lee, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, it is absolutely our pleasure. And Lee, before we jump into the book and all sorts of other things, uh, could you just tell us some more about yourself? Introduce yourself to our audience so they can get to know you a little bit. Yeah, the most important thing is uh, Leslie and I have been married for 49 years. Awesome. Uh, She is a graduate of Fremd High School in uh, Palatine, and I grew up in Arlington Heights and uh, went to Prospect High School. Um, I have four grandchildren, uh, ranging from 8 to 16, and they are awesome. And uh, the most important thing about me is when I was a toddler, I think I was about two or three years old, the Chicago Cubs got a new shortstop, a rookie by the name of Ernie Banks. That's right. <laughs> and and my parents took me to a banquet where he was a speaker. And before the, he, uh, the speaking started, during the dinner, I was wandering around. I'm like two or three years old. And I fell down behind <gasps> his chair. And Ernie Banks picked me up, put me in his lap. <laughs> I sat in his lap. And then at the end, he kissed me on the cheek. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. That's so, amazing. So I have been kissed by Ernie Banks. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. I think we're done with our interview now. Yes. Thank, you for your time. <laughs> Thank you for your time. <laughs> that's a great story. Isn't that great? I, I, and so fantastic. I'm a Cubs fan, yeah. <laughs> Love it. We are so excited to talk to you about your new book, The Case for Heaven. And I do Thanks. feel like the timing is really perfect, especially after the year and a half we've all been through. I know people are asking questions about the afterlife. And then even as they're grieving people that they've lost, they're asking those questions. So let me just ask you a big open-ended question. Tell us why you decided to write this. Well, it started uh, several years ago when I almost died. Um, Mm -hmm. My wife found me unconscious on the bedroom floor. She called the paramedics. I was taken to the emergency room. I opened my eyes uh, and, and a doctor looked at me and said, you're one step away from a coma, two steps away from dying. Oh, wow. And then I went unconscious again. So I I hovered between life and death for quite a while until the doctors were able to save me. I had a a rare medical condition called hyponatremia, which is a severe drop in my blood sodium level. Hmm. And I lost a kidney as part of it. And, and so, um, 
it was a very clarifying experience uh, to almost die. I, I kind of recommend it <laughs> to people. <laughs> it brings everything into perspective. Yeah. And even though I was a Christian and I believe what the Bible teaches about the afterlife, um, I'm also kind of a skeptic. I mean, my background's in journalism and law, so I tend to be a little skeptical. And uh, I wanted at that moment, it became really, really important what happens when you close your eyes for the last time in this world. And so um, I decided to investigate the afterlife and see, is there any corroboration um, of uh, the biblical teachings from science and, and so forth? And I spent several years doing that. And the result is my new book, The Case for Heaven. Wow. And uh, Lee, we often hear, uh, I remember a funny Seinfeld joke where he talked about the two biggest phobias that we have in life are, <laughs> uh, are death and, um, and public speaking. And usually public speaking is number one. Right. Uh, Which so, means that people would rather die than give a right. speech at a funeral. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so what are some ways people deal with that fear of death? How do we overcome? How do people try to overcome that phobia usually? Oh, they deny it. Um, they think that they're the exception. Um, you know, we're going to talk for maybe 20 minutes today. There'll be about um, 800 to 1,000 people who will die around the world just during our interview. Wow. wow. Um, it's the reality. And yet people shove it to the background. They think, oh, poor Uncle Bob, he died, but that's not going to happen to me. Yeah. And uh, they think that whatever they have, is going to be cured by medicine before it claims their life. Um, some people think, uh, oh, I'll just have my body frozen and then they can thaw me out when uh, they find a cure for what uh, <laughs> right. killed me. Wow. Uh, the problem with that is if you've ever poured um, Coca-Cola over a glass of ice, you hear a cracking sound and, and that's called sonic fracturing. And that's what happens to organs and brains when they're thawed out. <laughs> it, it just doesn't work. Um, so people will try a lot of things or they try, you know, a lot of people will try to achieve something great so that they'll be remembered. Wow. Um, yeah. But some people do horrible things so they'll be remembered. Um, uh, mm -hmm. The guy who killed um, John Lennon said he did it to try to get a piece of his fame. Wow. Um, Mark David Chapman. That's why he said he killed him. He wanted to be famous. So uh, it's a mixed bag. And, and um, I think, you know, the Bible says in Hebrews that the cure for our fear of death is Jesus. It's God. Mm -hmm. And um, when we have a strong faith, when we're confident that we're going to spend eternity in heaven, uh, it, it, it tends to dissipate a lot of the fears involved. Wow. So it, it's interesting to be hearing you say this, that in all of us, there does seem to be at least a longing for yes. some sense of eternal life, which sort of makes, makes you wonder, uh, did God put that longing there? I, he um, did. Ecclesiastes uh, says, you know, that um, um, he, he implanted in us this um, uh, desire to live forever. I'm paraphrasing. Yeah, it's so interesting. Okay, Lee, let me ask you a question because there's a lot of these books or stories or even movies about near-death experiences yes, that yes. we really like soak up as a people. And I'm wondering how trustworthy those are. That's a great question. And this was the biggest surprise in my investigation because I was a skeptic about this. I thought near-death experiences were a new agey kind of a thing. I thought they were um, maybe the last gasps of a dying brain or hallucinations or something. Mm -hmm. Well, what I found out is there are 900 scholarly articles written in scientific and medical journals over the last 40 years on near-death experiences. This is a very well-studied uh, phenomenon. 
And um, what I learned from a journal article in The Lancet, which is the prestigious British medical journal, uh, none of the common alternative explanations for near-death experiences stand up to scrutiny. Um, that there are aspects of this that are just unexplainable, except to say that when we die, our spirit, our soul, our consciousness separates from our physical body. And, um, and that's what the Bible says. Um, Paul says to be absent from the body, to be present from the Lord. Uh, Jesus told the repentant criminal on the cross today, you'll be with me in paradise. So it's consistent with biblical teachings. Um, but I was a skeptic. And so I only looked at that, which I could corroborate. Mm-hmm. And uh, I found and I document numerous cases where people saw things or heard things um, in their out of body experience at a near death experience that they could not have seen or heard if this wasn't true. The most famous example involves a woman named Maria who died of a heart attack in the hospital and her spirit separated from her body. She says, I was conscious the whole time. She said, I watched the resuscitation efforts. And then her spirit floated out of the hospital. And when it came back and when she was revived, she said, oh, by the way, there's a man's tennis shoe on the roof of the (gasps) hospital. Come on. Come on. And it's, it's, it's a man's shoe. It's left footed. It's dark blue. There's some wear over the little toe and the shoelace is tucked under the heel. And wow. they went up and checked it, and sure enough, there it was. Yeah. No yeah. <laughs> and and that's just one of a whole bunch of examples that I have in my book. One of them, they studied 21 blind people, half of them blind since birth. And during their near-death experience, they could see for Whoa. the first time. There was a wow. woman named Vicky who was blind since birth. And yet during her near-death experience, she's clinically dead. She said her consciousness continued. She saw the resuscitation effort. She saw people and plants and, and the sky and things for the first time. And then when she was revived, her vision disappeared. And oh medical experts says, th- said this is medically impossible. Wow. Man, I'd encourage wow. people, go get this new book, The Case for Heaven. A journalist investigates evidence for the li- for life uh, after death. You can also learn more about Lee and his books at LeeStrobel.com. Also follow him on Twitter at Lee Strobel. We have many, many more questions to ask Lee, so we're thrilled that he's going to stay with us here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. This episode is a rebroadcast of The Common Good on AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. And Aubrey and I are thrilled to be joined by Lee Strobel as we discuss his book, The Case for Heaven. If you missed the first part of the interview, uh, unbelievable background. But Aubrey, some of those stories, you got to go back. Unbelievable. I've already put the book in my cart on Amazon. There you go. You got to go get our podcast, wherever it is you get your podcast. Uh, just subscribe, rate, and review. So, Lee, let me just ask you a question people probably wrestle with all the time. Yeah. Uh, how would you describe heaven? Are we talking about just, you know, it's just one long church service? Is it something else going on? How would you talk about heaven? Yeah, you know, that's a great question because there's a lot of misconceptions. People tend to think of it as a very ethereal place up in the cloud somewhere where we're disembodied souls. But actually, the biblical teaching is that heaven is very uh, tangible. It's very physical. Uh, The Bible doesn't say that God is going to wipe out everything and create everything new. He said, I'm going to create I'm going to um, create a new heavens and a newer. I'm going to renew everything. Um, Mm. and, And so. 
Um, it's going to be a renewal of our world. And so um, it'll be a place similar to Earth, uh, but it'll be uh, without sin. Um, it'll be a place where we'll be able to uh, travel at will. Um, I think it'll be theocentric. It'll be focused on God, but it'll also be very relational with other people. Um, uh, there'll be friendships. Um, uh, and, and a lot of people don't realize this, but, uh, in heaven, every year, the Chicago Cubs win the World Series. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. good. That's it is good. a miraculous place. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> Lee, let me ask you kind of one of those big theodicy questions, because I know lots of people are asking this. Uh, you know, there's so many versions of this, but let me just ask the basic one. How could a good God send people to hell? Talk to us about hell. Talk to us about heaven. Yeah, I've got a couple chapters in my book about hell. I thought it was important to deal with that. And um, I think there's a lot of misconceptions about hell. Uh, first of all, that God sends people to be tortured in hell is the common perception. And yeah. that's just wrong on several levels. Number one, we send ourselves to hell. Mm. Um, God offers eternal life to anybody who comes to him at any culture at any time in repentance Amen. and faith and receives his free gift of salvation. Um, secondly, uh, hell is not a torture chamber. Torture is something that's implied, uh, applied from without. Uh, there is torment, but torment comes from within. It's a regret. It's a, um, a sense of anger and so forth. Um, and the other thing about hell that is very important is that there are um, different degrees of hell for different people. In other words, it's not one size fits all. Uh, we see in Matthew 11 where Jesus said that certain cities are going to suffer more than others because they refuse to repent uh, despite the miracles that he performed there. Uh, and then in Luke 12, uh, he tells a parable. Uh, and, and in this parable, the servants who know what the master's will is and don't do it are going to suffer more than those who don't know uh, what the master wanted. And so um, I think this implies that um, Adolf Hitler is going to have a different experience in hell than my next door neighbor who may be an atheist and hates the idea of God. And for him, heaven would be hell because he just hates the idea of God. Uh, and yet I believe his experience in eternity in hell will be different than Adolf Hitler's. So I think that's consistent with the fairness of God. Uh, I don't think anybody, um, uh, when they're judged by God, uh, will be able to legitimately shake their fist and say that was unfair. Yeah. We will yeah. all see the ultimate fairness of God's judgments. Yeah. Uh, Lee, in your book, uh, you talk about how the smell of coffee helped lead you to believe in the existence of a soul. Mm. Uh, I got to ask that question. Tell <laughs> us that story. Yeah, uh, I was interviewing a neuroscientist with a Ph.D. from Cambridge University, Dr. Sharon Dierichs. And uh, we were talking about the fact that a lot of people, a lot of atheists believe that we're just our brain. We don't have really a consciousness. Uh, we don't have really a um, um free will. Um, we're just a brain and we're just a bunch of firing of neurons. And she was trying to show that that's not true, that there's a different dimension to our experience. And she said to me, Lee, how would you describe to someone who's never smelled coffee? How would you describe the smell of coffee? And I thought about it. I said, I don't know how I describe the smell. How do you do that? How do you, you know, it's, it's impossible. And she said, exactly. Because you have to experience it. 
That is the consciousness that we have. It's an experiential thing. It's like if there was a woman named Mary and she was the greatest expert in the world on vision. She's a scientist. She understands how the eye works. She understands how the optic nerve works. She understands how the brain processes images. She understands everything about the process of vision, but she's blind. Mm. What if all of a sudden she received her sight? At that moment, would she know anything new about vision? Well, yeah, she could see. Yeah. So, so that's, that's, that shows that we're not just our physical brain. We have a mm. different dimension, an experience, a first-person experiential side. And that's what our consciousness is, our spirit or our soul. Oh, that is so, so interesting. Like, so fascinating. So I want to ask you about something else that I'm really excited about. I actually, ha- I'm finishing up my master's at Wheaton College in evangelism. Oh, and so oh, I was thrilled that you're starting this new center at Colorado Christian on evangelism and apologetics. Can you yeah. tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, this is really my legacy project. I, I gathered together 40 PhDs uh, in evangelism and apologetics, which is the defense of the faith. And we created 91 fully accredited, fully online courses on evangelism and apologetics. So you can get a master's degree online. You can get a bachelor's degree online. Um, and so um, we have hundreds of students already doing this all over the country. Um, but then recently we launched certificate level courses. And these are for people that don't want a degree. They just want to learn. And so you can take a course on the resurrect, the evidence for the resurrection or Islam or world religions or evangelism in the local church or small group evangelism, about 30 different courses. And, and the price is negligible. They're almost free. Wow. And um, uh, so we've been um, trying to encourage people to grow in these areas. And if people are interested, if they go to Strobel Center, one word, strobelcenter.com, it'll uh, take them to the uh, site of Colorado Christian with all the information. Oh, outstanding. And Lee, we'd be remiss if we didn't ask this before we let you go, because you are, we said your roots are here in the Chicago land. You told us your Ernie Banks story. Uh, let's ask you some Chicago centric questions. Uh, what, <laughs> what do you, uh, what favorite deep dish pizza from oh. trouble? Oh, oh, wow. You know, I, I love Giordano's. Oh, okay. yes, so yeah. good. I guess I have to go favorite hot dog then. You know, there used to be a place called Pete's. Uh, out in Palatine. I don't think it's there anymore. Um, but that's where I would always go would be to Pete. Um, okay. But now I go to what's the other place? The, the Portillo's. Is oh, yeah, good. that's good. Yes, I, I might find my way there today. Uh, <laughs> last question, Lee, for our Chicago people. You live in Houston, you said, and you also yes. spend time in Denver. What do you miss most about Chicago? Oh, it's such a great city. People are so real and and uh, engaging. And the history of the city is so fascinating. And, you know, I was legal editor of the Chicago Tribune. So I got to know a lot of the legal community, the, the lawyers, the judges. And um, uh, it's just a salt of the earth kind of place. Um, not a lot of pretense in Chicago. What you see is what you get. And, and I appreciate that. There you go. Well, next time you're in town, come stop by the studio. We'd love to t- spend some time with you. Oh, I'd love to do that. That would be wonderful. Again, uh, Lee Strobel is the founding director of the Lee Strobel Center for Evangelism and Applied Apologetics at Colorado Christian University, author of many books, including the new book, The Case for Heaven, A Journalist Investigates Evidence for Life After Death. You can find that wherever you get your books, but you can find out more about Lee at LeeStrobel.com. Also connect with them on Twitter at Lee Strobel. Lee, this has been just a wonderful time for us. Thanks for spending time. 
Oh, I really enjoyed it. Thank you all. And thank you for what you do. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good here on AIM 1160. Hope for your life. This episode is a rebroadcast of The Common Good on AIM 1160. Hope for your life. everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. How are you doing today? It's really good to have you with us. As pastors on this show, we talk about spiritual disciplines, uh, reading of the Bible, uh, praying, taking Sabbath, uh, all of these. But one of the ones that we don't think often about uh, is scripture memory. Mm. Uh, the Bible talks about hiding the word of God in your heart. Yeah. And um, storing it up, you know, basically for when you need it. And I don't know. Do you have people in your well, let's start. Let's start personal. Uh, I'm not anyone who's ever really done scripture memory. Like, you know, when you're in Sunday school growing up, you had to memorize the verse or whatever. But uh, it's just never been anything I've really done. I've always respected people. Yeah. uh, Who are very much into scripture memory. What about you? Is this part of your rhythm? So it has been in 2021. And I say that because it never was. And I always regretted that. And I always was a little like just in awe of pastors or preachers or authors that I would listen to, or just even friends who just were quoting scripture left and right. And I thought, Mm -hmm. wow, they, the scripture is internalized for them. I wish I could do that. And so I actually, for my new year's resolution, my goal was to just memorize scripture this year. And I actually got a scripture memory tool of called dwell dwell dwell.com and it's i mean it sounds a little cheesy but it's a temporary tattoo that has a scripture on it in like a design and then it comes with a article that you can read and some devotional thoughts and like a postcard and even a keychain for bible memory and it's only once a month so you're memorizing one scripture a month and so now it's almost december i've memorized 12 scriptures and that's 12 more than i did last year so i i'll keep doing it i i feel like um it is one of those disciplines that i think if you don't do you just won't do you know what i mean like it it will fall off the table pretty quickly and some of that is because if you're in scripture you're studying scripture maybe for a sermon or just for devotion Mm -hmm. you the scripture gets in there and you don't necessarily need to do the work of memorizing but i do i don't know i don't remember things really well and so but i I want to say this too. Um, I feel like I was taught really kind of terribly. The reason to memorize scripture is because one day people are going to take your Bibles and you're not going to have it. Oh, really? Yeah. It was sort of this fear-based kind of fundamentalist reason. And it wasn't like, hey, memorize scripture because you love to internalize God's word and because Mm -hmm. God's word will help you and because soaking it into your heart actually is an act of worship. Like I wasn't taught this beautiful reason. And so I think that's why perhaps I've stayed away um, because it almost felt like this legalistic thing to do out of fear. But as I began to realize like, oh no, God's scripture is beautiful. I just want to know it because I want to know God. That sort of changes your perspective on it. Yeah, I, I, that, that's right. People go in, you, in case your Bibles are gone, you need it. And that's true in other countries, obviously. Absolutely it is. Yeah, I don't uh, looking, want to make light of that. You're right. Looking at my bookshelf, I don't think that's going to be happening here anytime soon. But uh, I knew a guy uh, at my last church, if I remember right, he memorized the entire book of Romans. Amazing. I, I think it is so impressive, 
impressive when people memorize all of scripture. It is beyond Or like a whole Bible. Yeah. yeah. And Romans is no small book. That's about as long as, you know, mm-hmm. that's one of the longer ones that you could do. Yes. Uh, but Aubrey, you kind of touched on it, but um, let's unpack it more for people who've never even really considered memorizing scripture. Before we talk about more, how do we do it? Uh, help people, again, continue to unpack the benefit of it. Why even begin down that path? Or why did you go down that path? Yeah, well, you know, you mentioned the first part of Psalm 119 earlier that David's talking about how he has hidden God's word in his heart that he might not sin against God. Mm. So part of it is just knowing the word of God so that we would live faithfully for him. And then interestingly, over at Christianity Today, the um, singer-songwriter Sandra McCracken talked about the power of memorizing scripture in her life and how scripture keeps surprising her. And she shared this uh, that I wanted to share with you. She said, learning and memorizing scripture turned out to be the most important investment I could have made in my early years. I celebrate it now when it's much harder to learn a language or memorize a Robert Frost poem. These days are full of responsibilities and noisy distractions. These days, my mind is less absorbent. At any age, when we allow scripture to soak into our hearts, to saturate our roots like the tree in Psalm 1, we are fed by the nourishment of God's word. There is nothing more essential to life, even though making the time for it may seem like we're not being productive. Mm. What do you think about that? I think it's uh, it, that's powerful because as someone who doesn't necessarily do this, I'm, I'm being convicted right now, yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, the the question becomes, well, that, that could take some time. What's the value? I'm at least reading my Bible. Um, but there's this, uh, we know the things we've memorized. You know, we, we have random things that we've memorized in our lives and they just come out at certain times, right? Like they just... And, and how beautiful yes. if it is scripture that is just coming out as you're this past week, as you're mourning the loss of your mother-in-law, you're standing there in the graveyard and you've got, uh, you know, graveside and you've got scripture maybe coming to mind. Absolutely. You're, you're like not- Psalm 34 comes right to my Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. And you yes. just know that, Lord, you're close to us right now, even though we're hurting, you know, those kinds of things offer so much hope and comfort, honestly, right. when things are hard. So uh, let's give people tools. What's uh, what's a first step? We like to talk about first steps here. What is a uh, a first step towards starting to move? You you talked about an online tool, but how can people start down this path? Yeah, I mean, I I think let's go small, right? Like, don't. I mean, if you want to be the guy, that amazing guy at your church who memorized all of Romans, that is certainly a goal. Um, I I would say have a goal. And just begin. And there are apps for scripture memory. There's, again, this dwell.com if you want to get that pres- uh, subscription. That's been really helpful for me just to see the tattoo on my wrist every day. That helps me memorize it. Um, and then I think just asking God for help. Lord, I, I want to memorize your word. I'm not that great at it, especially as I get older and my mind doesn't work that well. Can you help me? I would say the most powerful thing, songs with scripture, right? Because right. we, the whatever reason, the brain remembers songs and remembers songs for decades to come. And there are all kinds of albums out there that are based on the word of God. And you can memorize scripture just by listening to songs as well. There's a whole nother lesson there about the power of songs. Isn't that true? Through the generation songs were done. So scripture memory, uh, an important spiritual discipline. I'm going to be convicted by that and maybe start to give it a try. So I hope you out there do. Well, we're glad that you're with us today. Stay with us. You're listening to The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life.
This episode is a rebroadcast of The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. We're so thrilled that you're with us today. Brian, uh, you know, over the past year and a half, you and I have talked about things like what it means to be woke or anti-woke, what it means to embrace some of the changes that the culture is experiencing while also being distinctive. One of our one of our values here at The Common Good really is to find the common ground. So uh, when Christianity feels so divisive, we want to find the things that we have in common and celebrate them. And we want to learn how to honor people who are different. Um, from where we are. And so I think the overwhelming question, one that we ask and one that's actually being asked at churchleaders.com right now is, how do Christians embrace the goodness of diversity without caving to the winds of cultural change? And I wonder, before we even dive into what they're saying at churchleaders.com, how would you answer that very complicated question? That's a very complicated question because I think we all feel like there is a lot of change around us, right? Like uh, there are, to use their phrase, winds of cultural change. And so there are there are some Christians who are wanting to just dig their feet in and be like, as hard as those winds are coming at me, that's how hard I have to push against them. And there are others who are going, we just have to go with culture, go work. And the answer obviously falls somewhere in the middle. Yeah. Uh, and so how do we do that? And I think this article does a good job to say, because how we do that is also going to have a huge effect on the next generation mm. who might think differently than we do, who might view things. And so you don't want to, you know, I think we're all struggling and wrestling right right now. Like, what does it mean not to cave, not to like turn yeah. my back on the things of my faith while not being so dogmatic that I'm, I'm majoring on things that are minor where we can actually have some disagreement and still be on the same team. Mm. How do I do that? It's, I think this is going to get harder and harder as we go. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I totally agree with you. It's going to get harder and harder. And again, we, we talked about this earlier in today's show, but how do we bridge divides while keeping our distinctives as Christians. And that's going to be just, I mean, it's not that that's a new question, but it certainly feels like a more pressured question, especially with, you know, conversations about gender, uh, gender affirming based whatever the different genders are and implicit bias and critical race theory and wokeness and all these things that like are not going away. Right. Um, how can we how can we just be Jesus better? I think ultimately yeah. that's the question that we're asking. So over at churchleaders.com, here's what they actually argue. They actually say that truth be told, diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, and they use a term for that, D-E-I-B, diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. These are not four-letter words. In <laughs> fact, they may be just what we need to find our way back to a discipleship that models Jesus and that sees those in our world come to true faith. I think that's really fascinating. They talk mm. about how, look, this is popping our homogenous bubbles, and that's a good thing. That's actually going back to what the early church was, like reconciling different brothers and sisters to one another. And so we get to actually now live in a world where it's all people of all shapes, sizes, colors, cultures, tribes, ethnicities, etc., and we see more of the gospel's power when we do life together with people who aren't like us. Um, 
They also say that this opportunity to embrace some of the, you know, the culture's conversations about diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, again, D-E-I-B. I don't know if you're supposed mm-hmm. to say deep or if that- I would guess not. Yeah, probably. I would guess All not. right. I kind of like calling it deep. <laughs> Go for it. Yeah. That's your move. <laughs> um, but here's, here's what's interesting. Treating these conversations, this is what this article says, as um, it's a problem that we just need training for, mm. right? Or we just need better policies about, fail to address the root issue. And no, it says no matter how many policies we implement, no matter how many trainings we offer, no matter how many HR protocols we put in place, the Holy Spirit has to stir our hearts mm. to new ways of thinking and seeing the world. And I think that's really interesting because I'm, I am one, I am of the camp that does believe we need to make more systemic changes. But I also don't think that's the end all be all, that it really is the Holy Spirit who's the one who's going to move all of us to help people know that all people belong in the body of Christ. Yeah. And so I don't know how to take that practically, Brian, but I wonder if you have any sense of you know, as Christians who are who are thinking through all of this and navigating all of it and trying to do right. And where does the Holy Spirit come into play? Oh, I mean, that that's a huge question. I think the Holy Spirit um, is what convicts us, right? It's what reveals truth for us. Yeah. He is what, uh, you know, our guide. And so I think one thing that points us to is that we can be praying about these things and we can be wrestling and and it's not only just about what did the last scholarly novel say you know book yeah. say or what did this person so i think we can do that but uh you know Aubrey, i i think we need wisdom right now mm-hmm. like more than knowledge we need wisdom mm, that's good and and it's the holy spirit who provides us with wisdom and i think we need to pray towards that end like because i think it is such a a murky path right yeah. now. We want to be people. Uh, we want people to feel like they belong and are included and are um, affirmed and all of these things. While at the same time, there are things that traditional orthodoxy, right? Like that, that the Christian faith holds to yes. that we can't then say, well, we're going to turn our back on that right? in the name of inclusion and belonging. Right. But yet, we want to hold those things while doing our best to make people feel yeah. belonging and value. And that's such a fine line because it's a two way street mm-hmm. street. If I hold to X, say something about sexuality, mm-hmm. that other person who believes differently than me might say, well, that doesn't feel very inclusive. That doesn't right. feel like you're being right. And you go, well, what do you want me to do? Like this is what we and so it's it my whole point is this is why the holy spirit needs to provide wisdom Absolutely. because i don't i don't think the answer is let's reject everything that we have believed through yeah. history right in the name of where our cultural right. winds are pulling us that's not the answer but yet we can't also say let's be so dogmatic mm. uh and and really um Let's fight so hard that we're going to ostracize everybody who doesn't believe everything. And so I don't know. I don't know what the right answer is, but this is kind of the edge for Christians right now as it pertains to what's our witness going to be in our culture. Yeah, I think you're exactly, you are exactly right, Brian. What is our witness going to be in this changing culture without, like you said, without letting go of 
what our holy word teaches, you know, right, so it, right. it, it here, here's what this article says. I feel like this is, uh, this is true of what we're saying. There is, this is no small feat. As research shows, nearly 80% of businesses are failing in their efforts at DEIB, but they're trying. Can we say the same thing? Can our churches and Christian institutions, are we trying to be a people who pray and live as though God actually does want his kingdom to come here on earth? Do we volunteer at our local shelters and show up at the anti-suicide rallies? Do we listen to the hard conversations around race and sexuality with open ears and open hearts? Are we people of safety for those wounded by our world? Are we salt and light in a world that seems increasingly dark and divided? And then I'll just end with this. It says, indeed, significant shifting is occurring in the religious and cultural landscape of the U.S. today. The question is, will we hide in fear or will we step into the wind and join God as he invites more and more people from every tribe, tongue, nation, belief system, gender, and ability into his family? We can use the language and questions of this cultural moment to point people to true belonging in God's word. So that is, I mean, that's a call right there. How do we, um, how do we do that? Invite yeah. all people into God's kingdom, simultaneously call those people to holiness in Jesus Christ and to live a life of obedience to him. This is going to be the ongoing question the church and all of us as Christians are going to face. Yeah. We need you, Holy Spirit, help us. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. This episode is a rebroadcast of The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. And Aubrey and I are thrilled to be joined by the executive editor for DesiringGod.org and also a pastor at Cities Church. Uh, most important for our conversation today, the author of a new book that we're excited about called Humbled, Welcoming the Uncomfortable Work of God. His name is David Mathis. David, how are you doing today? Doing well, Brian. Thanks for uh, having me here with you and Aubrey. Absolutely. Our pleasure. Hey, before we jump into the book, uh, why don't you introduce yourself? Tell our audience a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm originally from South Carolina, so you may hear that in my voice, even though I've been here in Minnesota since 2003. I met my wife, Megan, here in Minnesota. Uh, We have four kids. Uh, We're kind of a baseball family. My uh, 11-year-old twin boys love playing baseball. Mm. And uh, we we love the state of Minnesota. My wife is from here. We, I just got back actually from deer hunting this oh. weekend. <laughs> and uh, and speaking of the topic, that was a humbling thing. I, <laughs> I did not get a deer this weekend. Oh, sad. <laughs> did get some good reading time in the great outdoors. Oh, how fun, uh, Brian! I I know it's my turn to ask a question, but I just have to honor the fact that this is a baseball family, and you're a baseball family, so I feel like there's a connection here. So, David, if Aubrey was not here, that would be the rest of the time we'd spend here. <laughs> there you go. But sorry, sorry son, guys. <laughs> I have a baseball-obsessed son, but I'm also a bit obsessed. So another day we'll have you back on, David. I'll kind of turn Aubrey off, and uh, we'll talk baseball another day. So, well, One very practical thing related to our topic is what a humbling sport baseball can be uh, for uh, 8, 9, 10, 11-year-old kids. Because in baseball, there are strikeouts, mm-hmm. and there yes. are errors, mm-hmm. and that is just you. That is not your team that gave up gave up the goal that is you Mm -hmm. and so dealing with failure is a very important that's one of the reasons that we uh, make much of baseball in our families we're trying to develop our sons their maturity their composure 
and learn how to deal with failure on the baseball field. Oh, that's awesome, David. Well, again, the title of your book is Humbled, and that was actually a fantastic segue. I feel like humility is something that we talk about a lot. We read Philippians 2. We we want to be humble, but maybe we don't actually have a great definition for humility. Can you define it for us? Yes, I'd be happy to do that. And uh, one help in this is the great American philosopher, theologian, Jonathan Edwards, Hmm. who talked about humility as a creaturely virtue. And in the book, I try to to draw that out of biblical texts, go to the first mention of humbling oneself of humility, which occurs in the Exodus story, as Moses stands before Pharaoh and introduces to Pharaoh the God named Yahweh, the God who is, and Pharaoh purports to be God. And there's this power encounter between the real God and the fake God, namely Pharaoh. And one of the questions comes in chapter nine, chapter 10, Pharaoh, well, will you humble yourself before me? And so what's demonstrated there is God is God. He's the creator. Pharaoh, even as great as he is as a human king, probably the, the most powerful human in the world at the time, but he is a creature. And so he must embrace humility before God. He must embrace this creaturely virtue of owning his own lowliness before God, owning God's highness. And so in one sense, what what humility does is profess before God, you are God and I am not. Mm. And I'm okay with that. And I'm going to embrace that. And I'm going to feel the joy and freedom that can come with limiting in me those false desires to be like God. The very thing Adam and Eve did in the garden. Uh, I want to embrace my humility and own you are God and I'm not. Yeah, that's great, David. And when thinking about humility, uh, let me ask the question this way. Are there um, proactive things we can do to humble ourselves or is humility only a fruit of things that happen to us? Yeah, Brian, great question. And that that's really at the heart of the book and, and I, at, at the heart of how I was humbled in pursuing this study. Hmm. So I, I love reading my Bible in the morning. It is over the years I have made a habit of uh, stumbling out of bed, get the coffee going, open the Bible. (laughs) I want God's voice to be the first voice I hear. And I want his voice to be the voice I hear most deeply so that it would shape my day, shape my life. And as a Bible reader, I came across this phrase over and over again over the years, he humbled himself. They humbled themselves. You humble yourself under mm. the mighty hand of God. And so eventually I thought, I, I need to I need to figure out what's going on here because I want to be humble, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. The, the Bible tells us to seek humility and to pursue humility, to be, clothe yourselves with humility in Colossians 3. And so it's a good Christian desire that we would want to seek humility, pursue humility. But this is where... Uh, our American instincts can get in the way. We can think, oh, I, I want to do this, so I'll, I'll pursue it when I'm good and ready. I'll do it in my timing. I'll proceed through the various steps. And as I looked at what the Bible had to say about the path to humility, it was very humbling to see mm. it, it's not in your court, mm. creature. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You don't do it on your time frame. God does the decisive work in humbling. First, He moves. He takes the initiative. He humbles his creatures. And then the question comes biblically. You see this played out again and again throughout the text, especially 2 Chronicles. Then the question comes, now he's humbled you, quite apart from your timing or initiative. Now, will you receive his uncomfortable work? In other words, 
will you humble yourself? Mm. So that is the, that's the first and foremost lesson, I think, in what the Bible has to say about our humbling ourselves. And then, surprisingly, there is another lesson on the other side, which even though we cannot humble ourselves, we're not the ones that begin the process in our initiative and our timing. God has given us various habits to pursue, various patterns that we can put in our lives to prepare our souls for when those humbling moments come hmm. so that we respond with, with various forms of, of growing humility. Oh, and those, and very, to very simplify it very quickly, would be how we hear God's voice on a daily and weekly basis in, in our personal time in God's word, in conversation with Christians, in sitting faithfully under faithful preaching. Mm. How we hear his word shapes us for humility. How we respond to him in prayer, how we avail ourselves of his ear to uh, personally, corporately uh, prepares us for humility. And then third, and maybe one of the most humbling aspects of any of our lives is what it means to be committed to a local body of Christians in a local church. Hmm. It is one of the most humbling things you will ever do so to commit to a flawed people with their sins and their warts and your own and see how God means to humble you and prepare you for humility through the local church. Mm, that's so good, David. And I wasn't actually going to ask you this, but that statement just made me think of something Brian and I talk a lot about. We're kind of constantly charging our listeners to get back to church because we need to be an embodied people together. And, and I yes. wonder if um, you have any thoughts about that briefly. I know that's not really the heart of your book, but say more about that related to humility. Well, there is something to say very much related to humility and humbling ourselves. And in the title, uh, I use that word uncomfortable. Uh, embracing God's uncomfortable work. Uh, it is so comfortable to sit down at our computer with our beautiful high definition screens and nobody can make us do anything. Like there's, there's no discomfort. You can click when you want to click. You type when you want to type. You keep the whole world at arm's length and you have the semblance of control. Mm. But when you walk in to a face-to-face analog gathering. Now, and, and this is true with a one-on-one -on -one coffee date or a one-on-one -on -one lunch appointment. And all the more, when you walk into a room <laughs> of dozens or hundreds of people, you give up a kind of control because who's going to, because people can see you. They can see your eyes, your body. They hear your words. You can't take it back. You can't type something and then delete it and then type something else. Uh, and then, and they can ask you questions. How are you doing? And they can see your responses to those questions. Mm. So it is, it's a, there is a designed discomfort yeah. in analog face-to-face -face relationships that God has put there. And he means that for our good. And some of our resistance in getting back to normal life coming out of COVID is we anticipate that discomfort. Yeah. But that's exactly what God has for us mm -hmm. in this moment. Yeah. So I would say embrace that humbling discomfort and be where God's called you to be among the people of God. That's good. David Mathis, executive director for DesiringGod.org, author of a new book called Humbled, Welcoming the Uncomfortable Work of God. David's going to stay with us after the break. I want to ask him, uh, we live in a culture as parents where we want our kids to have high self-esteem. How do we... Uh, kind of hold these two things in tension. How does he do that with his kids? We're going to do that next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. This episode is a rebroadcast of The Common Good on AM 1160, hope for your life. 
Hey everybody, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm, and Aubrey and I are thrilled to be joined again by David Mathis. He is the author of a new book called Humbled, Welcoming the Uncomfortable Work of God. If you missed the background, kind of the first part discussing this book, go get our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Just subscribe, rate, review. That does help us out a bunch, and there you can catch up kind of the background as to what this book is about, why David wrote this book. So, uh, David, glad that you're staying with us. As we talk about humility, uh, Aubrey and I and yourself, we are all parents, and we we want our kids to be humble, right? We want to grow them in humility. At the same time, you know, we live in a culture in which kind of one of the goals is, uh, you know, give our kids as as high a self-esteem as possible. Like, you're important. You're special, uh, you deserve the trophies, whatever else it might be. I'm just curious how you as a parent kind of hold those intention. What what do you do as a parent uh, to kind of grow your own children in humility? Brian, that is a it's a fantastic question. And, and you're right. There is a tension to hold here because the Bible is very clear. It doesn't use the word special, but but that there's a kind of specialness that we have as humans made in God's image. Humans are special related to the animals. And even this, special related to the angels. Angels long to look into what we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God himself became man. He didn't become an angel to save angels. He became man to rescue sinful humans. And so angels look into the specialness of what it means to be in God's image and what it means to be redeemed, that Jesus himself became one of us. And there is, I think there's an appropriate specialness for a mom and dad. Mm -hmm. And I mean, what can we say? Grandparents (laughs) (laughs) to to kids about. And to say, I I can't help but say to my four and a half year old daughter, her name's Mercy. Mercy, you are special to your daddy. Mm. And so as much as there's an aspect of the message of specialness that I want to resist, I want to find the biblical place and the warmth of a father's heart to be able to say that. And what I'm not saying to my daughter in that moment, I'm not emphasizing her specialness over and against her peers, mm. over and against others. I'm not saying that you're special in your class. You're the greatest in your class. <laughs> you're, the, you're, the, you're the most special little girl in our church. It, there's a, uh, I, I think that's it's, it's a key thing. <laughs> One way we help, keep, we help give our kids a realistic vision of the world uh, into which they see the ways in which they're special and they're not, is by reading to them as parents. Hmm. First and foremost, the Bible, but then also other great books and literature that aren't just content for them to understand the world right, if it's a good book, but also at the same time, that's a medium for relationships. So hmm. we can speak in to various moments. And here's an example. Last year, when, when COVID fell, <laughs> I... Uh, I started the, the great one million word trek with my boys, reading them aloud, the Harry Potter series. Oh, that's awesome. Wow. <laughs> I wasn't sure if at age 10 they were ready for it. Yeah. I, didn't, right. I didn't know. Yeah. And so the lazy thing would have been, been to just turn them loose on it or to tell them no. Mm-hmm. I thought, you know, the thing that's really going to be costly is I'll go through them, go through it with them every word. Wow. (laughs) And so so over the course of 18 months, (laughs) we read aloud. I read aloud to them every word in the seven books. And there's one very memorable moment when Dumbledore is telling Harry Potter 
about the first time that, that Dumbledore met Tom Riddle. Mm. Tom Riddle is the little boy who, spoiler here, becomes the, <laughs> the great Lord Voldemort. Right. And uh, in that moment, Dumbledore tells the story of, you know, he, he tells Tom Riddle that he has this, this ability of magic and that Tom Riddle looked at his fingers and he whispered to them, I knew I was special. Mm. And then Dumbledore's comment to Harry is that that Tom Riddle was all too willing to consider himself, in his words, special. Mm. And it, boy, there's so much you could say there wow. about Tom Riddle not having a father and not feeling special in the right ways he should have felt special. Mm. But quite apart from that, let's just push that to the side, that he would see himself as special over and against other humans that he would he would leverage that not special as a creature of god not special as redeemed in christ not special to a particular parent or grandparent but special over and against others that is a as a great danger for pride and that's the precisely the place where we want to inculcate in, uh, cultivate and inculcate humility in our children. So there's one little vignette yeah, <laughs> yeah, to build humility into our sons, other than having them strike out and make errors in baseball games. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I feel like every pastor listening is about to use that in their sermon. This is a fantastic <laughs> anecdote. David, let me, let me ask you a personal question if you don't mind going there. But I, I'm, I'm certain that a lot of uh, author's writing comes from their own struggles. And I just wonder, is there a personal story that you share in the book of maybe your own humbling or something God did in your life to show you, teach you, convict you of humility? It is. A, it's a very short book. Uh, there aren't explicit personal stories, but maybe the, the biggest anchor is the first two words in the book. <laughs> I dedicated this book to Megan, my wife. And, uh, it, it, marriage is amazingly humbling. And I have all sorts of stories from my life of growing up and critical moments in college where I realized that the depth and extent of my, my own pride and, and seeking humility. I, there's, I, I, there's various times in my life where painful breakups or relational situations that were, were very humbling and you know, feeling that, that rejection. But even within this context of, of embrace and covenant, um, in marriage, that person sees you all the time. Like you, you, there's over time, you can't hide anything. Like, right, right. <laughs> right. It becomes, it, it becomes revealed. Like this person knows me better than anyone else. And that is both deeply encouraging and strengthening. And also it's humbling right. and it, it's humbling in some very good ways. It, Yes, painful, un uncomfortable for sure, but also humbling in the ways that we need to learn in our souls under God, in Christ, to embrace with a kind of joy. Yeah. There, there's a kind of pleasing pain in being humbled by a wife's observation yeah. <laughs> or her kind words uh, or uh, some kind of rebuke that is it, it it stings and yet to know this person has committed themselves to me for a lifetime mm. they're for my good this is a manifestation of god's own action in my life she is an instrument in the humbler's hand and uh that has been a, a very precious thing so it, it's it's not 
it's not a coincidence that I dedicated the book to my wife. <laughs> love that. Love well that. done. Uh, David Mathis, again, the author of the new book called Humbled, Welcoming the Uncomfortable Work of God. David, before we let you go, let people know where can they find you? Uh, tell them about Desiring God, but also where can they find you, social media, websites, other places? I feel a calling from God to the ministry of Desiring God. I love the ministry of Desiring God. Uh, it was founded in the 1990s before, while I was just a teenager, I had nothing to do with it. John Piper and John Bloom founded the ministry. Uh, it, it's focused on the web, though we also produce books. Um, for most of the history of Desiring God, it has been focused exclusively on the ministry, the preaching, the writing of John Piper. Mm-hmm. And then in these last 10 years, we have added other voices in the same theological stream to flank the voice of, uh, of John Piper. So we'd, we'd love to have you. We call ourselves Christian hedonists. Mm-hmm. That means that we are pursuing our holy joy in God and believe that our pursuit of joy in him magnifies him in the way that he ought to be magnified and glorified in our lives. And so I'd love to have you come visit desiringgod.org and, uh, and check out some articles that are fresh daily and books and sermons and other resources. Awesome. And you can also find David at David C. Mathis on Twitter. And let me encourage you again to go get his new book, Humbled, Welcoming the Uncomfortable Work of God. David, this was great. Thanks for spending so much time with us today. Thank you, Aubrey. Thank you, Brian. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. This episode is a rebroadcast of The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Aubrey, if it's Friday, it's top five. We love a top five list. We do. They're so fun. They're fun to dream about and think about. Like when we we get the topic, we're like, okay, I can do this. What's it going to be? And I came up with this week's, uh, and then we're going to do the jingle here in a second. But before we do that, it's going to be top five TV theme songs. I love this category. This was a hard was one. I, hard. You and I both had lots of extras, but we're keeping it to yes. our five. Uh, so let's kick it off. But before we do that, let's hear Debbie, our producer, her wonderful top five list jingle. Top five, top five, top five, top five, top five things with Brian and Aubrey. I would like you to go first. Okay. What is your number okay. one? This is like uh, there's some interpretation yes, to yes. this. Okay. Here's what uh, I'm gonna. Here's what I'll just well. say. I'm spanning the decades here, and the order I'm doing because I have very hard time choosing the order, like number five versus number one. So I'm just going in the order of the decades as well. That helped me. Okay. So here's the first one. You're gonna have this song stuck in your head the rest of the day. Happy days okay. from Happy Days. These happy days are yours and Just off my list. It was like the oh, it's next like an one honorable on. mention for you. Okay, yeah, yes. it's so catchy, it so, like, so catchy. Oh, like here's what's really here's what makes a good theme song is we can say these and immediately start singing. A hundred percent. Yep. I I affirm Happy Days. Okay, my number five is uh, it's a little bit of a of a story from when I was a Ooh, little kid. Okay. This show used to play on Friday nights, and I have this vivid memory. I don't even know if my parents remember this. I have this vivid memory. Of I had a guitar with this show on it, and I would come down and pretend to play <laughs> stop, the guitar stop. as a little kid, 
during the theme song to the Dukes of Hazard. Oh yeah, that's a good. That's a good one. I forgot about Just that the one. Good old boys. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's a good one. All right. Yes, I I, I remember playing that. Music, I like it. So that's my number. Very five. good. All right, my number four, Brian. I know is going to be your actual number one. It is the theme song from a little show we both love very much. A little show called Blossom. <laughs> and it's the theme song that's called My Opinionation. Don't bite the feeling. You know you want to have a good time. And in my opinionation, the sun is going to surely shine. Okay, I could not sing the Blossom it's theme so song. so good. I listened to it again this morning because I was like, ooh, this is a catchy. It's kind of like a blues B.B. King sounding song. It's very good. I do need to tell you, by the way, this will be our first TV um, top five list that I do not have the Wonder Years I on. I thought for sure you would have the Wonder Years because that's an amazing song. It is. I just felt like, I, I you know, I'm trying to okay, spice it okay, up a little fair. bit. Uh, number four, going back to like when you and I were probably in junior high, I okay. would say. Uh Little Michael Seaver and the oh, Growing Pains. The gr- oh, that's a good one too. That's a just fit. Wait, no, wait. What? How did it go? As long as we got each other. Yeah, I was thinking of that scene where there, there, there's a scene where they're singing another song. But yes, that's a great song. Okay, my next one. This was not originally written for this show, but it became famous again because of this show. Uh, the Gilmore Girls theme song written by Carol King, written and performed by Carol King, Where You Lead, I Will Follow. Where you lead, I will follow anywhere that you tell me to. If you need, you need me to be with you, I will follow where you lead. So, you know, the next episode of the Gilmore Girls that I watch will be my first. <laughs> sad and depressing ryan oh for many reasons but that is not <laughs> one of them were you a regular gilmore girls girl oh to put it yes oh yes oh yes okay as we do this there's so many more that are coming oh to mind i know it's a hard this is a bit we're gonna have to do part two and part three probably of this like i just i was just thinking about beverly hills yeah that's a good one too Okay, my number three TV theme song going in the way back. You and I are little at this okay. point. So, uh, MASH. You know, you see that chopper going over Korea. Yeah, it's good stuff. Good stuff. I'm too young to remember that show, so I don't know what it is you're We're referring to. <laughs> We're the same age. <laughs> All right, uh, my number two. Uh, Brian, I actually think people are going to think you're not going to appreciate this, but I know you actually will appreciate this because I know you. Okay. So this one is the theme song from Wizards of Waverly Place on Disney Channel. Everything is not what it seems performed and written by Selena Gomez. So I did watch all of those Disney shows with my kids, but honestly, we never really watched <gasps> Wizards of Waverly Brian, Place. That was like one of the we watched Dog ones. with a Blog. What? We watched all of them. Uh, Live in Maddie. And you did we watch watched, Wizards. Uh, of, the Wizards of Waverly Place was the best one on that run. Yeah. Wow, yeah. I'm sad. Okay, number two, 
And there's a deep down part of me that thinks this could end up as your number one. Although knowing how you normally go on these, you're going to go with some obscure Hallmark <laughs> thing or something. <laughs> My number two favorite theme song. Uh, that The second I say this, I think we can both recite the whole thing. The Fresh Prince of oh, Bel-Air. Oh, what a good one. What a good one. Now this is a story all about how my life got flipped, turned upside down. And I'd like to take a minute, just sit right there. I'll tell you how I became the prince of a town called Bel-Air. I could sing The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air start to finish right now. And there's another really random uh, cartoon that I can do that with. The Gummy Bears. Gummy Bears uh, bouncing here and there. and it, Wow. That's in my subconscious so can you. too, apparently. <laughs> exactly. I could give you chorus and verses of that one. I didn't even watch it that much, but... Absolutely. The All right. Any music. honorable mentions you wanted okay, to I'll mention? Just, I know very we're brief. I won't say a lot of these. Okay. But um, I will say this is mostly because of Seinfeld, but I've had the Believe It or Not theme song from Greatest American Hero stuck <laughs> in my head for like 20 years since, since Seinfeld's on. You, I, this might be your number one. So I'm hesitant to say, but the Cheers theme song is one that uh-huh. everyone loves. And then lastly, I'll just say, from One Tree Hill, I Don't Want to Be by Gavin DeGraw. I love that song. One Tree Hill. What about you? Any uh, honorable mentions? You were just all about the WB Network. <laughs> <laughs> the Dawson's Creek theme song. There are a lot. Happy Days was on mine. Laverne and oh, Shirley was on mine. that's a good one. I forgot about that. Uh, a show that I didn't really watch, but everybody knows the theme song was uh, was Hawaii Oh, 5-0. that's a good one. Yep. But you called me out. Oh, wait, no, you were going to give your number one first. Yes, okay. My This this is, I don't know, this might be controversial, but I actually really like this song, and I have listened to it outside of the show, okay? But it's brand new-ish. And that is the theme song from Ted Lasso by Marcus Mumford Ooh. and Tom Howe, and it's actually called the Ted Lasso theme song. All right, you called out my number one in your honorable mentions. I did. I did choose it's Cheers. It's a great song. Sometimes you wanna go where everybody knows your name, and they're always glad you came. You wanna be where you can see our troubles are all the same. You wanna be where everybody knows your name. Where everybody knows hey, your name. Yes. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, it's a good dun, one. Dun. So good. Uh, but oh, you know which one I also put on my honorable mention, but I thought about doing? Right. Uh, family Ties. What would we do? Without Here's the deal shows in the mid 80s, that was like all about theme songs. Oh, like big there's, there's time. Shows now, you're like, I know, there's no theme oh, yeah, songs in this really day and age. Song. I tried to look, I mean, that's why I was so excited about the Ted Lasso theme song, because you don't have a lot of theme songs anymore. That is true. Uh, We're really glad that you joined us today. Thanks for being with us. For Aubrey Sampson, I'm Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.